Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for joining us for our Arab Shabbat broadcast here at B'nai Shalom.tv. I'm, my name is Ephraim Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries. And from our family to yours, thank you for inviting us into your home each and every Arab Shabbat, uh, whatever way you might be watching, whether that's on Facebook Live, uh, online at B'nai Shalom.tv, our mobile app, or any of our other uh, smart TV apps. We thank you for uh, celebrating the Sabbath with us. Um, we will, uh, of course, worship the Lord. We will set apart the Sabbath with the Kiddush, and we will hear from the Torah portions, the Brit Hadashah, and the Haftorah portions for this week. Right now, it's December 13th, and uh, it is not too late yet to register for uh, the last event that we are hosting this year, and that is our Hanukkah conference. That's this December 27th and 28th in Norman, Oklahoma. You can go to HanukkahEvent.com and register your family there, and we hope to uh, celebrate that joyous time with you. Uh, teens and children are free, so we look forward to seeing all the families uh, that, will, that the Lord will bring to our area uh, here at the end of the year. And once again, we always like to remind you, if you, uh, you are blessed by this broadcast and uh, would be stirred in your heart to make a donation, you can do so at llgive.com, and there are several different donation options there, so we encourage you to go to that website, and uh, if the Lord would stir in your hearts, to make a donation to this ministry as we continue to be faithful, to serve the Lord, and to minister to the brethren. Once again, thank you for joining us. Now let us set apart the Sabbath with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. 
Now the Hamotzi, blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. <laughs> Husbands, let's bless our wives. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our wonderful wives that you've given to us, Lord, and we thank you, Lord, for beautiful wives of Proverbs. Thank you, Lord, for my wife and the blessing that she is to our home and to our family. Bless her, encourage her, and strengthen her as she teaches and educates the children, as she wakes up in the morning to take care of them and see about the ways of the household. Father, I thank you for the wonderful blessing she is to me and to our home. I pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her and pour out your very best blessing upon her on this Sabbath day. So we love you and bless you and thank you for all of these things, Lord. In Yeshua's name, amen. amen. Now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. <laughs> now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu etarunai ham vorach. Baruch adonai ham vorach le'olam vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michumocha. Micha mocha, ba'elim Adonai. Micha mocha, nedahar b'chodesh. Nohorat echilot, Now the blessing of the Messiah. 
Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu et derech, ha-Yeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et ha-Shabbat, la-asot et ha-Shabbat, l'adrotam barit olam, b'nei avayom b'nei Yisrael, ot-hi le-olam, k'sheshet yamim asadunai et ha-shamayim v'et ha-aret v'yom ha-shavi Shabbat v'yinafash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem, Kivod Malchuto, Le'olam Vayed. Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai Ochecha b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha uv'chol meodecha Veheyu hadevarim ha'ale asher nechim ezavcha hayom alevavcha. Veshinan tam lavenecha, vedepardabam beshiftecha, beyetecha, uvlechtecha, vederech ushakbika, uvkumika. Ukeshatam la ota yadecha, veheyu latotavolt binenecha, uketatama mozuzo betecha, uvisharecha. Altogether. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
on this Shabbat, Father, on this set-apart time, we cry, Holy Kadosh, Kadosh Laka. There is none like you, Father, in all the earth. How majestic is your name. Lord, we just lift you high in this place and we thank you for everything that you are doing. Everything that you have done and that you will done. Lord, you, you are the author of all things. You are making all things new in every season, Father, and we just praise you. Father, we lift our voices to you today. We lift our hearts, our minds to you. To give you praise and to give you glory. Shalom. Please join us for the reading of Parashah Vayishlach. Then Yaakov sent messengers before him to his brother Asav in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus shall you say to my lord Asav, Thus says your servant Yaakov, I have sojourned with Lavan and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Yaakov, saying, We came to your brother Asav. And furthermore, he is coming to meet you, with four hundred men are with him. Then Yaakov was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, If Asav comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. Yaakov said, O oh, Elohim of my father Avraham and Elohim of my father Yitzhak, Adonai, who said to me, Return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Yarden, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esav, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers and with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. So he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esav. Two hundred female goats and twenty male goats, two hundred ewes and twenty rams, thirty milking camels and their colts, forty cows and ten bulls, twenty female donkeys and ten male donkeys. He delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on before me and put a space between droves. He commanded the ones in front, saying, When my brother Esav meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong? And where are you going? And to whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, These belong to your servant Yaakov. It is a present sent to my lord Asaf. And behold, he is also behind us. Then he commanded also the second and the third, and all those who followed the drove, saying, After this manner you shall speak to Asaf when you find him. 
and you shall say, Behold, your servant Yaakov also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before him while he himself spent that night in the camp. Now he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Yabok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had. Then Yaakov was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so the socket of Yaakov's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Yaakov. He said, Your name shall no longer be Yaakov, but Yisrael, for you have striven with Elohim and with men and have prevailed. Then Yaakov asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Yaakov named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen Elohim face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Yaakov's thigh in the sinew of the hip. Chapter 33. Then Yaakov lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esav was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids and their children in front, and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Yosef last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Then Esav ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. He lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children and he said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom Elohim has graciously given your servant. Then the maids came near with their children and they bowed down. Leah likewise came near with her children and they bowed down. And afterwards, Yosef came near with Rachel and they bowed down. And he said, What do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Asav said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Yaakov said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, take my present from my hand, for I see your face as one sees the face of Elohim, and you have received me favorably. Please take my gift, which has been brought to you, because Elohim has dealt graciously with me, because I have plenty. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Asav said, Let us take our journey and go, and I will go before you. But he said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before a servant, and I will proceed at my leisure, according to the pace of the cattle that are before me, and according to the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord at Seir. Asav said, Please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Yaakov journeyed to Sukkot and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Sukkot. Now Yaakov came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram and camped before the city. He bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Chamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar and called it El Elohei Yisrael. Chapter 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, 
whom she had borne to Yaakov, went out to visit the daughters of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivi, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. He was deeply attracted to Nidnah, the daughter of Yaakov, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young girl for a wife. Now Yaakov heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Yaakov kept silent until they came in. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Yaakov to speak with him. Now the sons of Yaakov came in from the field, and when they heard it, and the men were grieved, and they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Yaakov's daughter, for such a thing ought not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us, and the land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it and acquire property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, If I find favor in your sight, then I will give you whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give according as you say to me, but give me the girl in marriage. But Yaakov's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor with deceit, because he had defiled Dinah their sister. They said to him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you, if you will become like us, in that every male of you be circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters for ourselves, and we will live with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughters and go. Now their words seemed reasonable to Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. The young man did not delay to do the thing, because he was delighted with Yaakov's daughter. Now he was more respected than all the household of his father. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men in the city, saying, These men are friendly with us. Therefore, let us let them live in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Only on this condition will the men consent to live with us, to become one people, that every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will live with us. All who went out to the gate of the city listened to Hamor and to his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out to the gate of the city. Now it came about on the third day, when they were in pain, that two of Yaakov's sons, Shimon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. Yaakov's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and that which was in the field. And they captured and looted all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in the houses. Then Yaakov said to Shimon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanite and the Perizzi. And my being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister as a harlot? Chapter 35 Then Elohim said to Yaakov, Arise, go up to Bethel and live there, and make an altar there to Elohim who appeared to you, when you fled from your brother Esav. So Yaakov said to his household and to all who were with him, 
Put away the foreign gods which are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments, and let us arise and go to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to Elohim, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Yaakov all the foreign gods which they had, and the rings which were in their ears, and Yaakov hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Yaakov. So Yaakov came to Luz, that is, Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him, he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there Elohim had revealed himself to him when he fled his brother. Now Devorah, Rivka's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the oak. It was named Alon Bachut. Then Elohim appeared to Yaakov again when he came from Padan Aram, and he blessed him. Elohim said to him, your name is Yaakov. You shall no longer be called Yaakov, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. Elohim also said to him, I am El Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Avraham and to Yitzhak, I will give it to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then Elohim went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. Yaakov set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. So Yaakov named the place where Elohim had spoken with him, Bethel. Then he journeyed from Bethel, and when there was still some distance to go to Ephrat, Rachel be began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. When she was in severe labor, and the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. It came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Oni, but his father called him Binyamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Afrat, that is, Beit Lechem. Yaakov set up a pillar over her grave, that is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Yisrael journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. It came about while Yisrael was dwelling in that land, that Reuven went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Yisrael heard of it. Now there were twelve sons of Yaakov, the sons of Leah, Reuven, Yaakov's firstborn, then Shimon, and Levi, and Yehuda and Yitzchar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Yosef, and Binyamin, and the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan, and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad, and Asher. And these are the sons of Yaakov, who were born to him in Padanaram. Yaakov came to his father Yitzhak at Mamre of Kiryat Arba, that is, Hebron, where Abraham and Yitzhak had journeyed. Now the days of Yitzhak were 180 years. Yitzhak breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age, and his sons Esav and Yaakov buried him. Chapter 36 Now these are the records of the generations of Esav, that is Edom. Esav took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Adah, the daughter of Elon the Hitti, and Oholibama, the daughter of Anna, and the granddaughter of Zivion the Hivi, also Basimat, Yishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaot, Adah bore Eliphaz to Esav, and Basamat bore Reuel, and Holibama bore Yehush and Yalam and Korah. These are the sons of Esav who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esav took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all his household and his livestock and all his cattle and all his goods which he had acquired in the land of Canaan and went another land away from his brother Yaakov. For their property had become too great for them to live together. And the land where they sojourned could not sustain them because of their livestock. 
So Esav lived in the hill country of Seir. Esav is Edom. These then are the records of the generations of Esav, the father of the Edomi, in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esav's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Esav's wife, Adah. Reuel, the son of Esav's wife, Basemat. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, and Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Esav's son, Eliphaz, and she bore Amalek and Eliphaz. These are the sons of Esav's wife, Adah. These are the sons of Reuel, Nahat, and Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These were the sons of Esav's wife, Basemat. And these were the sons of Esav's wife, Oholibamah. The daughter of Anah and the granddaughter of Zivion, she bore to Esav, Yahush and Yalam and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esav. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esav, are Chief Teman, Chief Omar, Chief Zepho, Chief Kenaz, Chief Korah, Chief Gatam, Chief Amalek. These are the chief, chiefs descended from Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. These are the sons of Reuel, Esav's son, Chief Nahat, Chief Zerah, Chief Shammah, Chief Mizah. These are the chiefs descended from Reuel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Esav's wife, Basemat. These are the sons of Esav's wife, Aholibamah, Chief Yehush, Chief Yalam, Chief Korah. These are the chiefs descended from Esav's wife, Aholibamah, the daughter of Anah. These are the sons of Esav, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir, the Hori, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan and Shobai, and Zivion and Anah, and Dishon and Azair and Dishan. These are the chiefs descended from the Hori the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemam, and Lotan's sister who was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobai, Alvan, and Manahat, and Eval, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zivion, Aya, and Anah. He is the Anah who found the hot springs in the wilderness when he was pasturing the donkeys of his father, Zivion. These are the children of Anah, Dishbon, and Holibama, the daughter of Anah. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, and Eshban, and Itran and Cheran. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, and Zaavan, and Akan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aran. These are the chiefs descended from the Hori. Chief Lotan, Chief Shobal, Chief Zivion, Chief Anna, Chief Dishon, Chief Ezer, Chief Dishan. These are the chiefs descended from the Hori, according to the various chiefs in the land of Seir. Now these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the sons of Israel. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom. And the name of his city was Din Haba. Then Bela died, and Yobab, the son of Zerah of Botzrah, became king in his place. Then Yobab died, and Husham of the land of the Tamani became king in his place. Then Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the field of Moab, became king in his place. And the name of his city was Avit. Then Hadad died, and Samla of Mazrekah became king in his place. Then Samla died, and Shaul of Rehoboth on the Euphrates River became king in his place. Then Shaul died. And Baal Hanan, the son of Achbor, became king in his place. Then Baal Hanan, the son of Achbor, died, and Hadar became king in his place. And the name of his city was Pau, and his wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Mezahav. Now these are the names of the chiefs descended from Asav, according to their families and their localities. By their names, Chief Timna, Chief Alva, Chief Yehet, Chief Oholibama, Chief Elah, Chief Pinon, Chief Kenaz, Chief Teman, Chief Mibzar, Chief Magdiel, Chief Ir Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esav, the father of the Edomi, according to their habitations in the land of their possession. Thank you for joining us for the reading of Parashah Vayishlach. 
Now, upon returning to the land of his father, Yaakov devises a plan. In this plan, he divides up his possessions and sends them ahead of him in various stages. Now, it's a genius plan. Just one problem. The plan was created and carried out without once seeking Adonai's counsel. Adonai allowed all the trials and challenges that Yaakov had faced during the 20 years he was in Aram to come upon Yaakov in order to shape him, mold him, and change him. And it appears that Yaakov fails to learn the most important lesson through these trials. Seek Adonai in his direction first before devising your own plan. Consider Moshe as the antithesis to this concept. Moshe continually sought Adonai first. Anytime he was challenged, the first thing he did was fall on his face and seek Adonai's counsel. It's important for us to remember to seek Adonai first before we act. But at the same time, we shouldn't just sit back and wait for him to do it for us. Action is required. Like Yaakov, we too are going to experience trouble in our lives. How will we respond to it? In an apparent wake-up call for Yaakov, Adonai sends his messenger to wrestle with Yaakov all night long. There are times when Adonai only releases his blessings on us after a season of prolonged and even painful wrestling with us. But we should always be mindful that when he calls us to wrestle with him, there's always more going on than we first understand. And he always uses it to transform us for good. Adonai will meet you in the midst of your anguish in the midst of your fear, in the midst of your uncertainty. But he may not meet you in the way that you expect or desire. Your greatest ally may show up looking at first like your adversary, inciting you to wrestle with him. So ask yourself this question. What do you really need from Adonai right now? What blessing do you really want from him? How badly do you want it? Stay with him. Don't give up. Don't let him go until he blesses you. He loves to bless with that kind of a tenacious faith. And you will come to be someone who is transformed out of that experience, just like Yaakov was. You, like Yaakov, will walk away from your encounter with Adonai as an overcomer. Praise his name. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Good to see everyone. Thank you, Ephraim, for your teaching. And if you would, uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Obadiah. Uh, this week's Haftor portion uh, is a very unique. It, we actually have two portions this week for the Haftor portion, the book of Obadiah and a passage from the prophet Hosea. For those of you who are wondering where in the world is Obadiah, there's only one chapter to it. It's after Amos and just prior to Jonah. So if you see Amos or Jonah anywhere, it's, you're close. But you might have to turn one page at a time to find this one because it's a very small uh, book. Uh, it really doesn't even constitute as a book. It's just 21 verses uh, uh, for it. Let me uh, uh, say to you why these two passages have been selected uh, to be part of the Haftorah. To it. Uh, as Ephraim shared with us about the reunion back again between Jacob, 
and Esau, and in particular, the dividing of his family into two companies, there's tremendous prophetic implications in that Torah portion. You've heard it said before, what happens to the fathers will happen to the descendants. And this is one passage where there's very profound pictures that are given to us about Jacob and what happened to him that has profound implications throughout the ages to all of us. Not the least of which is, in the case of reunifying with with Esau and this conflict of Esau wanting to kill Jacob and the famous kiss that Esau gave to Jacob and where the jots are above it and they point out the points of his teeth that he really wanted to bite his neck and kill him. Uh, but he suppressed that, you know, because of what God did to set the stage for Jacob to come back to the land, that through the resulting generations of Esau and Jacob, we have this conflict still playing itself out from generation to generation. And essentially, the descendants of Esau is always constantly at, at odds with the descendants of Jacob. And so the reason why we have Obadiah as part of this is because Obadiah is a prophet who specifically prophesied to Esau and to his descendants. And Obadiah in these 21 verses is going to lay out the big game plan that God has for Esau and for his descendants. And it is not good. Uh, Through Esau, we have a, in fact, even to this day, The conflict that we see in the Middle East between the Palestinians and the Jewish people is a further outflow of this conflict between Jacob and Esau. And if you're asking yourself, well, how's God going to sort out this thing with the Palestinians and the Jews over Israel? Well, let me go ahead and just tell you what the Bible says specifically. The Palestinians don't win. They lose. They utterly lose Everything, every part of everything they're laying claim to, they lose it all. Now, that may not be politically correct to say today, but this is the overwhelming message of this prophet. Obadiah is going to, I'll walk you through it. But before I do that, let me walk you through why do we have Hosea. And the passage in Hosea is the one just prior to last week's. And Hosea from chapter 11 through portions of chapter 12 is also included in this portion. So why is this passage part of the Torah portion of of Jacob coming back? Well, it has to do with the dividing of his family into two companies. That That prophecy that came out of that was there came a time when God, uh, as part of the punishment of Israel, divided Israel into two companies, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, the house of Israel to the north, the house of David, the house of Judah to the south. And the house, And as you know the history, the house of Israel went into Assyrian captivity first. Then Judah went into worldwide captivity. Well, they went to Babylonian captivity temporarily for 70 years. They came back, but then they went into worldwide captivity through the Romans. Now, the prophets all prophesied these things. Praise God. God says in the end, at the end of the ages, he's going to bring them all back. Now, in our generation, we've already seen the early elements of Judah coming back to the land. And in fact, we have a modern state of Israel 
And the Jews, you go over there, they'll tell you it's all about uh, fulfilling prophecies. There's a great prophetic message in modern Israel about their return. It's part of the redemption. And, and uh, the rabbis teach that the modern state of Israel in this generation is the signal of the approaching messianic age. They believe that God has fulfilled his word, brought them. They were scattered in the nations that brought them back to the land again. But we're still waiting on the house of Ephraim to make the return. And part of what we see here, Hosea, Hosea is the prophet to the house of Israel, the northern kingdom. And he's going to speak to their eventual return. He's going to speak to them coming back and God restoring them. Although they had been punished, uh, you know, as uh, going into Assyrian captivity, he's going to speak to those future things. And it's a, some very positive messages in here. So you have the conflict of Esau going on, which God will resolve uh, with Esau. And at the same time, these two companies that came into the land, they're going to be unified again in the land, just like we saw when Jacob, outside the land, divided his house into two companies. He deals with the struggle with Esau, and he becomes unified again as one house inside of the land. All right? So with that model that comes out of the Torah, the Haftor portions are giving specific details about, in Obadiah, how to resolve the conflict with Esau, and in the case of how do we bring the house of Israel back correctly, that's going to be addressed by Hosea. So that's our introduction. Let me now take you again to, let's talk first Obadiah. And let me go ahead and just read these 21 verses to you. You'll be able to catch the drift of this very quickly. Uh, first of all, let me give you a little background on Obadiah. The name Obadiah means slave of God or servant of God. And this is a, while it seems like a strange Hebrew name to us, this is a very common name in the Middle East. There are many variations and versions of this name, both in the Arabic world, in the ancient world, and in the Jewish world, that, that has to do with some of the, um, some of the names, I don't know if you've ever heard, um, some of the nicknames in the Arab world is Abdi. Matter of fact, my builder of my house, his name was Abdi. Abdi is the short version of Obadiah, but that's the Arabic version of it. Um, and uh, Avdios is, is another version from the Greek side. Uh, many languages have taken this name, the servant of God, and they've made a name variation. So this is a common name uh, in the Hebrew world, in the ancient world, and still extends to this day. It might seem like a very interesting, unique name to us. Um, at this time, but in those days, it was a very common name. There's several people in the Bible that have this name. So every time you see this name, it's not necessarily referring to this prophet. Uh, there are many different references to different people named Obadiah at various times. This Obadiah in particular, according to Jewish tradition, uh, so that we, there is a Christian tradition about this and a Jewish tradition. Let me give you the Jewish one first. Obadiah was a servant to King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Now, Ahab and Jezebel are two considered to be ungodly people in the history of Israel. Yet, Obadiah became a godly man. 
he was a very godly man, a very devout man. And one of the things that is credited to him is that he was a rich man. And that one of the things that's also credited that he took his riches, he took all of his wealth, and he committed it to preserving and protecting the prophets of God from Jezebel and from King Ahab. That he's credited with doing that. And, and as a result, uh, he was, uh, is considered a, a great man in the history of Israel and a great prophet. They also, the Jewish tradition is that he was not born Israelite. He was born from Edom. He was a descendant of Esau. And thus, because of his righteous deeds, God gave him the spirit of prophecy. He became a prophet. And therefore, he was the best qualified guy to be the prophet who would prophesy against Esau. That he, now, that's the Jewish tradition, all right? The Christian tradition is that he was actually an Israelite. He was born um, as part of Israel, uh, and they don't say so much about the other stuff other than he was prophesying against Esau. Uh, so, whichever way it is, whichever it works out, it, it's really, I just give you the background information so that you know about it in case somebody says, well, who in the world is Obadiah? Well, let me just tell you, he had a very common name, but he had a very unique prophecy. He only wrote a small book, 21 verses, but they're very powerful. And they really address the Esau situation. Uh, Zephaniah, the prophet, he's what we call the prophet of the day of the Lord. He wrote a book just about the day of the Lord. Obadiah wrote a book just about dealing with Esau. And because we have the conflict of Jacob and Esau in this Torah portion, that's when they use this. Uh, to draw attention. So that's your background on Obadiah. Let me uh, share with you what Obadiah had to say. So beginning at verse 1 of his book, the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations saying, arise and let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who can bring us down to the earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined. Would they not steal only until they had had enough? If great gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleamings? Oh, how Israel will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border, and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, in order that everyone may cut off, be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Because of the violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. 
On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune, and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast. It is the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster, and do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. And do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives, and do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. For the day of the Lord draws near on all of the nations, as you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions and the house of Jacob will be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau will be a stubble and they will set them on fire and consume them so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau, and those of Shephelah, the Philistine plain, and also they will possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead, and the exiles of his host of the sons of Israel, who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in the Shepherad, who will possess the cities of Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Some of the language that you heard in here is so picturesque to what is happening today. If you look at the Middle East today, the conflict between the, quote, two-state solution, the land of Israel where the Palestinians are at in the Gaza uh, over in Jordan, uh, where the Philistines are at, up to the northern regions where, excuse me, the Palestinians are at, some of the ancient Philistines. That's exactly in the West Bank in Samaria, Judea and Samaria, where, where the, the Palestinians are at. That's the language of Obadiah. And he's saying that at the day of the Lord, you know, when the day of the Lord comes, Esau is going to be wiped out. That everything that Esau lays claim to, they will have lost. Now, Esau at the moment, the descendants of Esau, they lay claim to the entire land of Israel. They're in certain regions right now, but they don't even want Judah to have any of it. They don't want Israel to have any part of it. And in fact, if you see a map of the Palestinians today, they just show Palestine. They don't even credit Israel as a nation anywhere on any of their maps. And by the way, there's a whole bunch of people in the world that agree with them. And those nations that are opposed to Israel, they agree with the Palestinians. Those nations that agree with Esau are going to suffer the same fate. In fact, some of those same nations are going to be part of the demise of the Palestinians. Um, the Palestinian people, again, this is highly politically incorrect. They have no sustainable industry. They have no sustainable way to live as a nation. They produce nothing. How do they exist then? Well, they exist by the donations of other nations who are simply opposed to Israel. 
And by the way, the United States of America contributes to them. You know, hundreds of millions of dollars every year. Um, part of the language here says those so-called friends of peace with them, they're going to do them in. Other nations, all they have to do is stop supporting the Palestinians. And the Palestinians evaporate like that. There's nothing to sustain them. There's no viable means for them. Um, and that's part of this judgment spoken by Obadiah. He speaks of the descendants of Esau as this is their this is their end lot. When it's all done and we get into the messianic age and kingdom, no, there won't be any descendants of Esau. As a people, they won't exist anymore. They are part of the conflict now, but in the future they will not be anymore. Uh, absolutely devastating. And one of the things that the Obadiah specifically points out about them is they considered themselves very high and mighty. They considered themselves that uh, their ego is higher than everyone else. And if you listen to the rhetoric of the negotiations that are going on in the, in, between the Palestinians and Israel, one of the things that all the people that have been involved in the peace process has come to understand is that the Palestinians are like the haughtiest people you've ever met in the Arab world. In fact, they are so perverse in their haughtiness, even the other Arab nations don't like dealing with them, let alone Israel having to deal with them. And the peace talks, you know, that everybody's trying to get going, the Palestinians refuse to agree on anything. If Israel in a negotiation, it gets anything out of the negotiation, they refuse. Their only way of negotiation, the only acceptable negotiation is if Israel is put down and they are elevated to match their ego, then they call that a workable agreement. That's what Obadiah describes them as. And this picture of you think you're lofty, you think you've set your nest, you think you're above all of this, it's from there that the Lord will bring you down to the earth. It's from that perceived elevated position. He's going to shatter you with that. The higher you get, the farther you're going to fall, and the greater the impact is going to be. That's basically what, what Obadiah is saying. Um, I don't need to remind you that Proverbs says very clearly that, you know, a haughty spirit is before a fall. Well, if you're looking for a people that embody that principle, Obadiah is saying that the descendants of Esau and Edom, they are the people that symbolize that. So the conflict that we saw between Jacob and Esau beginning as brothers has made its way through the ages to where we're at. And in the end, when the Lord returns and establishes his kingdom, that's when that problem will end. So now let's shift gears and let's now go to Hosea and see what Hosea is now saying to the northern kingdom, saying to the house of Israel that ties into this. Again, I remind you that uh, Jacob divided his family into two companies. That was how to preserve and protect them. God did the same thing to Israel. When he knew that they were going to disobey and they'd be scattered to the nations, he divided them into two houses, the house of Ephraim, the house of Judah, with the same logic that Jacob used to defend his family. 
if the enemy attacks this one, the other one can escape. If the enemy attacks this one, then the first can escape. And basically, that's how God has preserved Israel being scattered in the nations. How Israel went into Assyrian captivity, but Judah was safe. Uh, then Judah goes into captivity, but uh, uh, the house of Israel is assimilated. They're safe now, and Judah now suffers punishment. But there's a day coming when they'll all come back, and Judah comes back first, according to the prophecy. Then Ephraim joins Judah. That's the prophecy. That's the pattern. And that here we are in this generation. Judah has made their way back to the land from the exile of the nations, and now we're looking for Ephraim to come back. We who are in the Messianic movement, Today, the vast majority of us are not of the house of Judah, like myself. The vast majority are people that probably are of the house of Ephraim. Uh, they're not necessarily Jews, but they identify with Israel, the God of Israel. They have this yearning. They're called the sons of the living God, as Hosea called them. And they're coming back, not sure about their identity in Israel, but through the Messiah, that identity is being reestablished. Because the Messiah is the one who's credited with bringing the house of Ephraim back. So that is a backdrop. Let me read to you now from some of this element from uh, Hosea chapter 11. Let me go through that first. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms. They did not know that I healed them. I led them with the cords of a man and bonds of love, and I became, became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king, because they refuse to return to me, and the sword will whirl against their, their cities and will demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsels. So my people are bent on turning from me, though they call upon the one on high, none at all exalts him. Let me just add to you what Hosea is basically saying. He was the first prophet of the word prophets. He prophesied first to the house of Ephraim after the split. After the house of Ephraim, led by uh, Jeroboam, split away from the southern kingdom. We now have the two kingdom thing. And they had allied with Assyria. They were allies with Assyria against Judah. Um, and part of the reason why Judah did not have a civil war with them was because of that. Now, Ephraim got all high and mighty about this. You know, they were prospering. They were doing well. They're allied with the Syrians. And so here's Hosea comes along and he says, hey, you know, those Syrians that you've allied to, they're going to come get you eventually. You've made yourself allies with them. All they're going to do is know all the intel and they're going to come in. They're going to take you in captivity. They're going to wipe you out. You know, the, the, they thought they were so smart getting allied with them, turns out that's going to be their very death uh, when they go into captivity. But then the Lord, he says, I won't send you into Egypt again when I scatter you. I'm going to send you to Assyria. And that's Hosea telling him, you know, and in the days that when he said this, they thought Assyria was their friend. But he's telling them, your friend is going to turn against you. You've walked away from the Lord, so I'm going to take your friend. I'm going to use him as part of your punishment. Verse 8, here, this is really the Lord's heart with concerning Ephraim. Uh, verse 8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? 
how can I make you like Adma and, and can I treat you as Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me and all my compassions are kindled. Basically, the Lord is saying, look, you're stirring up my strongest feelings of love for you. And yet you're not listening to me. I'm appealing to you as much as I possibly can. I'm not going to give you up. I can't give you up. Yet they're going to walk away. And he pledges, verse 9, I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not man, and the Holy One is in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar, and his sons will come trembling from the west, and they will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will settle them in their houses. There is a day coming when you're going to hear me roar. But it won't be for your death and destruction. It'll be the day that you get very humble and you return. And that's the end of the ages. This is, this is when God, you know, manifests himself in the final judgments. Ephraim is going to be back there in the kingdom. He will be back in the kingdom again, but he's going to come very humbly uh, when he does it. Uh, chapter 12. Ephraim feeds on wind and pursues the east wind continually. He multiplies lies and violence. Moreover, he makes a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. And the Lord also has a dispute with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And in his maturity, he contended with God. The passage that we just had, you remember Jacob? If you remember Jacob's name, Yaakov. It's the letter Yod, and Akov, or Ekev, is heel. Yod means hand, hand on the heel. That's Jacob's name, hand on the heel. That was at his birth when he was born. It was the hand of, or it was the heel of Esau that he was on, and the prophecy was he would prevail over his brother. Uh, you would think he wouldn't in that situation, but it, it, it's to the opposite. He will prevail in the end. And then it says, and he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. You know, Ephraim just got through sharing about Jacob wrestling with the angel during the night. And because you have prevailed, you know, it's, it's said um, there from it. His name was made Israel because he prevailed uh, from that. He wept and sought his favor. He found him in Bethel. And there he spoke with us, even the Lord, the God of hosts. The name is his, the Lord is his name. Therefore, return to your God, observe kindness and justice, and wait for your God continually. A merchant whose hands are false, are false balances, he loves to oppress. Um, it's an, it, this is a statement made about God. Um, he says, if you're a false merchant and you're cheating people, I, God, one of the things I like to do is I like to oppress you. You're oppressing other people. I, I like to oppress you. Uh, let me just take a sidebar off to the moment. Uh, let me give you a comparison to this. Uh, the new Secretary of Defense under President-elect uh, Trump is a former Marine general. His name is Mattis. He has a nickname, Mad Dog Mattis. He, he was the commanding general 
in Iraq during the Fallujah campaign, which was a very major military campaign. In fact, he was a hero of it. Obama didn't like his attitude afterward and fired him basically after that. Uh, but he's highly, highly respected uh, by military circles and, and military professionals. And Donald Trump thinks he's a professional, and he wants to make him in charge of the Secretary of Defense. He wants to make him in charge of the Defense Department. Um, he, this general is quoted as saying several things. And one of the things that he's quoted as saying about Islamic terrorists is the following. By the way, this is not politically correct either. Uh, he said, look, Islamic terrorists beat their wives. They abuse their children. They rape other women when they come in and attack. And they torture and behead people that are different from them. And it is my pleasure to shoot every one of them, uh, which really puts it in perspective as a warrior you know, kind of thing. Listen, listen to this. The Lord says, a merchant whose hands are, are false balances, he loves to oppress. You know, essentially what General Mattis said about his enemies and how he feels about his enemies, that's how God expresses himself about his enemies. So I hate, I hate to tell you this, General Mattis, the attitude that you're displaying is not unique. The Lord God Almighty has exactly the same attitude toward his enemies. You know, you're just showing what we refer to in the Bible as righteous indignation, righteous anger. This is not out of control. Um, this is not prejudicial behavior. This is called righteous indignation. This is the right thing to do. And that's where the, God, the Lord is coming from. And by the way, I think that's where his testimony is coming from. I am personally encouraged by the President-elect Trump's choice of him. I have uh, great hopes that he will bring sanity to the Department of Defense and get the Department of Defense back into the business of defending this country again instead of being a giant social experiment on how to mess with people's lives. Uh, so we'll see how that turns out. Uh, but I'm telling you, Hosea would, would be with me, standing with me on this one. Okay. Let me go a little bit further. Verse 7, a merchant whose hands, uh, we've already covered that. Verse 8, and Ephraim said, Surely I have become rich, I have found wealth for myself, and all my labors they will find in me, no iniquity which would be sin. But I have been, now, that's Ephraim's statement. It's, by the way, it's false. He thinks he's rich. He went into captivity. You know why? You know, he got so rich. You know what the Assyrians said? Well, let's go capture him. <laughs> we'll steal all their wealth. So in that abundance where they thought they were doing great, it was the very thing that tripped them up. And that's the reason why the Assyrians came and stole it all from them. So if they'd have been poor, they would have been better off. But they became well, they traded, they became great merchants, they became they, they stole money in their merchanting business, and God said it'll be my pleasure to oppress you, so guess what? I'm sending the Assyrians, they're gonna take everything away from you. And that was basically what happened. But now I want he's gonna shift gears and he's gonna make this incredible statement, and I really want you to mark your Bibles in this passage for a moment because uh, when I read that this week, this blew me away. I've always known these things to be true, but...
but listen to these words now. Verse 9. But I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and I will make you live in tents again as in the days of the appointed festival. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about Sukkot. The appointed festival is, the, is, is Sukkot. That's when we dwell in tents. That's when we get. And the Lord says, Ephraim, guess what I'm planning on doing with you while you're scattered? I'm going to make you live in tents again, you know, before I bring you back. So guess what we're doing here in the Messianic movement in this generation? While Israel, Judah is over there in the land, they've returned to the land. Guess what the house of Israel is doing in the nations? We're observing and keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. We're dwelling in tents at the appointed times, at the appointed festivals, worshiping the Lord. That's the vehicle that God uses to restore the house of Ephraim. And there are, of course, many teachings that we teach as a code that speak directly to this. I've never, I've always believed this be, to be true. I've taught this. I've taught about the greater exodus. I've, I've encouraged people to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. There is the verse that succinctly says, Hosea says, guess what, Ephraim, while you're out in the nations, I'm going to make you dwell in tents at the appointed festivals, and that will be part, and I will remind you who I am, and I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And by the way, I'm the God that's going to bring you out of the nations and bring you to the promised land. The whole teaching of the greater exodus. What a powerful verse for us as messianics today that speaks precisely to what we are observing and doing ourselves as well. Verse 10, I have also spoken to the prophets, and I gave numerous visions, and through the prophets I gave parables. You know what he's referring to? By the way, the numerous prophets and all the visions, it's about the end of the ages. He's talking about, I've given you many prophets that will tell you what will be happening in your days and what will be happening at the end of the ages. I have given those all to you. So when you come to and you dwell in tents and, and so forth, that's when you're going to begin to understand what are the visions of these prophets? What have these prophets have to say about you? That's the whole end time scenario teaching. And here's God telling Ephraim, that's how I'm going to inform you. That's how you're going to be making your way back. Credible, the way this is laid out. Verse 11, is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely they are worthless. Is Gilgal, in Gilgal they sacrifice bulls? Yes, their altars are like the stone heaps beside the furrows of the field. And basically what it's saying is all of your, Gilgal is where they first camped back in the land. And, 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 uh, they, and that's a very special place in the history of Israel when Israel first began to take possession of the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And so he's making reference to, you remember back in Gilgal? You remember when you, the first place you went in? You're going to have memories like that because when I'm bringing you back, you're going to have, you're, you're going to have very powerful memories of first coming into the land. Well, let me tell you what some of the prophets have said about this. It says the Messiah brings us all back, and we observe the Feast of Tabernacles for the first time back in the land with the Messiah, and the Messiah is now tabernacling and dwelling with us. Let me assure you, that memory of what we will experience in that time frame far exceeds 
the whole story of all of Israel leaving in the Egyptian exodus and camping at Gilgal when they first came into the land. When they came into Gilgal, first camped in the land, and Joshua was in charge, and so they were, they were getting ready to, to uh, take out the whole land. They were getting ready to the conquest of the land. When we come back, when we enter into the promised kingdom, it would be the conquest of the entire kingdom of God. Theirs was just the land of Israel, the down payment toward the kingdom. Ours will be the whole world belongs to the Lord. Our starting of the kingdom will far exceed when Israel first came into the promised land. Verse 12 actually begins the portion that we saw before. This is the final verse I just read to you for this portion. I want you to take note of what the prophets do here. They, they start up and they, they address some hard facts, the, the hard issues. But, but God says, like he said, I'm not going to give you up, Ephraim. I don't care what you've done. I'm going to bring you back. I am going to heal you. And, and there's a way in which I will do it. The prophets have spoken to it. You know, if you'll get on board with me, you'll be part of this incredible story, this incredible event that will be taking place. And for me, uh, this is a very personally very exciting portion that speaks to it. I have taught, just as Ephraim has done, about the picture of the house of Israel being divided into two kingdoms and then coming to back together as one. We call it the restoring of the whole house of Jacob. And now we have the prophet specifically speaking to Ephraim, saying, this is what you're going to do with you, Ephraim. And I love this part. Well, he'll make us dwell in tents at the appointed times first. And here we are today in the messianic moment. Can I just tell you that 20-some years ago when I started observing the Feast of Tabernacles and got into a campground and invited out, there were very few people doing that in the messianic moment. And now there are a multitude of Sukkot's all over the world that take place. Ephraim, the house of Israel, is rising up in the midst of the nations. You're seeing the spiritual return. Here's Hosea saying, yeah, that's what's supposed to happen. That's the way it's going to happen. Praise the Lord. It appears that we're on track with the Lord's great plan. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this Sabbath. Thank you, Lord, for the wonderful words from the prophets. Thank you, Lord, that they give us words of hope, of victory that will be in the end against our enemies. They also give us words of hope that we're on the path to return to your kingdom. Thank you, O God, for choosing us to be your people. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, looking down upon us with favor. And, Lord, we are excited to be part of your great plan and that we will step into eternity and be able to share the testimony with others about how great you are and how wonderful you have been to all of us. We thank you for all of that. In Yeshua's name, amen. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. 
If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, to chapter 26. Hold your finger at verse 36, where we will begin there for our Brit Hadashah uh, teaching uh, for this week. And as you open the Scripture, let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time, once again, for your teaching and your instruction as we study the living Word of God, Lord, as you minister to us through the Torah portions each and every week. Father, I pray that we would make those Scriptures come alive and that it would speak to us in what we are dealing with in our current day-to-day lives, whatever we face each and every week. Father, I pray that you would just, uh, we turn this time over to you and pray that these words words would be minister would minister and be encouraging to all the brethren who might hear it. We thank you Lord for this time in Yeshua's name. Amen. Our Torah portion this week is Vayishlach, which we have, uh, if we've done the reading and we've studied, that this is the story, of course, in which Jacob is coming back into the land and he sends messengers to his brother Esau to tell him that he is coming back. We, of course, know he spent the last bit of time with his uncle Laban. At the end of our portion last week, he made covenant with his uncle that he was not going to, that they weren't going to do any harm to each other and that he is getting ready to come back into the land some 20 years years after uh, he had fled the land of Canaan, the land of his fathers. And of course, he did so a little bit under a cloud. He, uh, his brother Esau was seeking his life because he had taken the blessing. And so he sends these messengers to Esau and to see how uh, everything's going to go. How, how is this interaction going to happen? But we know that, of course, the messengers come back and they say, yes, Esau is on his way and coming to meet you with 400 men armed to the teeth, ready to go to war, ready, ready to kill you, your family, your whole, all, everything that belongs to you, and he's going to wipe you out. And so there was a great amount of distress that came upon Jacob. And we, of course, in our uh, Torah portion know the story of how he wrestled with the Lord, and that when the interaction finally came, that he meet, met his brother, that ended up things went a little bit better than he thought they would. But that didn't stop the time of distress that he felt before preparing to meet his brother, before he came to face the one who sought to do him harm. All of the patriarchs, when we study the Torah, all have their own parallels to the Messiah himself. They kind of all are this... Messiah-like figure themselves, that where we have Abraham, the father, and we have uh, Isaac, the promised son, and then we have Jacob, the the Israel, and, and they all sort of represent God in a certain way. And that it makes it makes them like a Messiah. There's parallels to the to the Messiah himself. So anytime that we're ever focusing on any one particular character, especially back in our Torah cycle, we there's parallels that we can always make to Yeshua. In the coming weeks, we're going to be talking about Joseph, and we're going to be talking about all the parallels, and there is no end to the parallels between Joseph and the Messiah. But there's all these different comparisons. Now, I say all that to to say this. There is a time in a reading in the the passage we're going to read for the um, Brit Hadashah teaching today is talking about a time in which the Messiah himself, that he was also sorrowful in distress. If we remember Jacob, before when he wrestled with God, before he wrestled with God and he was preparing for this meeting with his brother, that he found himself alone. He found himself isolated, and then that's when he had this interaction with God, and he was going through this great amount of, of stress. 
Well, the Messiah here at the very close, right before his crucifixion, this is after the Last Supper, this is when they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and then he goes, and it was a watch night at the time when the Messiah came with his disciples and came into the garden, and he sat and he asked his disciples to sit and pray with them or watch with them and be with him for a little while. But they continued to fall asleep and they continued to, and he found himself alone in distress because the Messiah himself knew what was coming, that he was going to face his adversary. He was going to face his betrayer. Let me go and read the story here as we have in Matthew 26, the story of our Messiah Yeshua in the garden. And then as I start to read this, you will start to see some of the parallels of what happened to Jacob in our Torah portion for this week. Verse 36, then Yeshua came with uh, with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of uh, Zebedee. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, Not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed a third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the time in which the the Messiah, speaking to the disciples, and as the, the time started to pass, He knew the time was coming, that he was going to face his betrayer. With Jacob, in that night that he wrestled with the Lord, you know that it still was weighing on him, that he was going to still go meet his brother. But it was that wrestling with the Lord that encouraged him, that strengthened him to know that it's like that he had striven with the Lord, so then he was able to strive with man. That was the encouragement to Jacob. What we see here is we see the weakness of the flesh of the disciples that the Son of Man was the one who is now distressed and that he himself is now facing that same distress, that same feeling that our patriarch Jacob also faced that night. This speaks to the parallel of everything the Messiah experienced, that he is always in the state of paying the price for our sins, our mistakes, and that he didn't have, the, the Messiah is left alone here. He's surrounded by disciples, weak of flesh. Jacob had the Lord on his side. Jacob had the Lord who, who wrestled with them, who, who, who he knew that there was one greater than he that was going to be watching over him. But the Messiah himself is in this feeling that he had been left behind, that he had been abandoned. And he's praying to God the Father, praying to God that he says, well, your, your will be done, but he's, but he's pleading 
that the cup would he would be able to partake of the cup. They still this is still going back to the Passover and the cup that he took and says, I will not drink of this until I see the kingdom. And this speaks to all the Messiah has done for us, that he felt forsaken on the cross. He felt the way that we feel when we feel abandoned, forsaken, and that he was overcame all of these things. It's, a, it's the story of the Messiah overcoming every issue that any of us have ever faced so that there is an example and a precedent for us to overcome any struggle or trial that we face ourselves. I guarantee you, Jacob, if he knew the story of the Messiah, and I believe we'll see him in the kingdom, and he will know, and, and the Messiah can say that I felt what you felt that night before you were going to face your brother, what seemed to be certain death. Now, the story can, continues on in which then we have the interaction with Judas, with his betrayer. And what he does is, is, is Judas is going to come and he's going to make himself known. And there's a very inter- interesting interaction that happens with Judas and the Messiah that if we've read the Torah portion, you will immediately see the parallel. Continuing on, verse 47 of chapter 26, Matthew. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately he went up to Yeshua and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Yeshua said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then there came, then they came and laid hands on Yeshua and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Yeshua stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Yeshua said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do not think that I can now pray to my father that he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels. How then could the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must happen thus? And in that hour Yeshua said to the multitudes, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat, I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and did not, and you did not seize me. But all of this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all of the disciples forsook him and fled. This is the, this interaction. This, this is the time in which this begins the crucifixion of the Messiah, when he is arrested, when he is taken. And that we have this very fascinating story of Judas, the one who was betrayed him, came to him and kissed him. Now, when you say that, you know, people know of this and there's a, a phrase that you might have heard said that it's that when somebody kisses somebody, it's the kiss of Judas or it's the kiss of death. That it's like that this is not a this was not a greeting that was going to uh, that, that had, you know, nothing but good intentions and that Judas was happy to see his master and see his rabbi. No, this was a sign to the one that he was uh, that he was working with. He was working with the people who meant harm, meant death to the Messiah, and that we know that there is the, that the spirit of the devil, of evil, was upon Judas in the whole process of him doing this. This kiss was not a friendly kiss. This is one that tr- truly showed and proved that he truly was intending to betray him. 
So now, of course, go back to our story with Jacob and Esau. What happened when they fell, when they, when they finally saw each other? When they finally saw each other, and, and Jacob will we'll get into the story how he produced many gifts and that he's trying to appease his brother, and he goes and he divides his company. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a, in a little bit. And that how when he finally did meet his brother, the one who was intending him harm, you know, everything sort of worked out the way, a lot better than we thought it was. He comes, they fall on each other, and Esau kisses his brother. And they weep together, and they reminisce. Now, was this interaction, was everything good between Jacob and Esau after this happened? No, of course not. There was still absolutely 100% animosity between Esau and Jacob. This was not them making up and suddenly everything was all better. In fact, it continues on in our Torah portion, talking about the descendants of Esau becoming the Edomites, which became a people that dwelt in the south of Canaan, and they were a heartache to the descendants of Jacob for many generations to come. That they were the ones that then when the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt, coming into the land, they had to deal with the Edomites. And that they were the ones also that it's said and spoken of how they helped deliver his brother, the descendants of Jacob, Israel, into the hands of the Babylonians. That they stood by idly and did not come to support their brother. This is the Edomites and the descendants of Esau were never allies to Jacob and to his sons and to the kingdom of Israel. They never really were. They, they, they were neighbors. They cohabitated, cohabitated. They knew that they were related by blood, by brothers. But they absolutely never had the alliance that we would like to think that, a bro, that brothers would have with each other. And that even though they had this interaction where they kissed each other, this was not a kiss of friendship. This was a kiss of bitter betrayal that would come later. The prophet Obadiah speaks solely of what happened to the Edomites, that judgment came upon them because of their pride, because of how they mistreated their brother. And you can look at that and the, the judgment absolutely fell also upon Judas for what he did to the Messiah. This is this parallel and this interaction. And if you notice the Messiah taking the peaceful approach where he says, no, we're not going to go to war. We're not going to pull out swords and go to fight. This is going to be a losing battle. There's soldiers and multitudes coming against uh, what would be the Messiah and what would be his disciples. And this was going to be a slaughter. There's no way that these men could have uh, fought. They would have fought valiantly, but they would not have won in the course of this fight had it come to blows. Same was the case for Jacob and with Esau. Esau was coming with 400 men armed to the teeth, ready to go to war. If Jacob decided to pull out his sword, to, to, to prepare to fight, to prepare to battle, this was never going to end rightly and appropriately. And we know, of course, everything came out as it should. This is the same parallel to the Messiah when he said, look, the scripture must be fulfilled for me to be arrested, for this, that we're not, we're not going to fight. This is what, how, Things are meant to be because once again, the pattern always is the case. What happens to the fathers will happen to the descendants. And there is a complete parallel between the Messiah facing his betrayer, Judas. And when they came to meet and, and greet for, for the last time, they were, there was this interaction. But we know there was much more going on under the surface. Such is the case with the kiss of Esau when Jacob came back into the land. 
So there's an amazing parallel here, of course, of, of, of the interaction between the Messiah and Judas and Jacob and Esau that, um, that, that teaches us that there's always more going on under the surface, that you can't just what meets the eye. You might see, oh, these people uh, loved each other. Well, no, of course not. The, the, the gospel sp- specifically says this was even the sign to the ones, the evil that Judas was working with of who was going to war and or who was the enemy, so to speak. I might think, or there might be a teaching somewhere, that when Esau kissed his brother Jacob, that that very well could have been basically the, the spirit that was within Esau, that whatever he whatever evil that he associated with, that this could be the same thing in the spiritual world, that when Esau kissed his brother, it was basically the sign that it was Jacob that was going to forever be the enemy of Hasatan, the adversary of anything that is evil coming against, that this was the association, this was a sign to the rest of anyone or the evil spirits that Esau uh, uh, found himself in agreement with, that this was something that later on that continued to progress into more of the trials and tribulations that Jacob faced in his life. Now, back to our story, I, the, the main thing I want to focus on, I want to take a look at, is some, one of the things that Jacob did before he met with Esau, his brother. He was trying to come up with every kind of thing that he could possibly do to defend against or, or to, to, to ward off his brother. Came up with many ideas. We're going to give him a bunch of lavish gifts that we're going to give to him. In fact, he did end up giving all these gifts. That he was going to try and appease him. And he then had his family walking with him when he came to meet him. And that maybe uh, Esau, though wanting to do harm to Jacob, would see the little ones or see the wives and, 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 and would take pity on him. I also believe that after he wrestled with the angel, he had an, an injury to his hip. He walked with the limp. And so Esau, always being a man after the hunt, after a, a man's man, he didn't. He actually withheld his wrath toward his brother because he was already wounded or already appeared to be walking with the limp. Any number of things that, we, that might have gone into the fact that, that uh, the meeting between Jacob and Esau didn't come to blows. Well, one of the other ideas that Jacob did was, and this is the one who has amazing prophetic parallels into the future when he did this, was back in our story when he says, when he was greatly distressed, he divided his family. It specifically says in verse 7 of Genesis 32, where it said he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and the herds of the camels into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to one company and attacks it, the other company which is left will escape. So this whole idea that he was able to, this is just a strategy here, one could say, that he's dividing in. So he's putting some of his family, his flocks his, his, in one place and then putting some of them in another. And so if attack truly comes to one, the other one will have a chance to escape. This is a pretty good strategy, honestly, if you don't want to be completely wiped out. It's obviously tragic if you can't, uh, if you can't fight, but at least you will have part of your family that would still survive and would still live on. This is, a, this is an okay strategy. It's not the one you ever want to fall back on. But if you're trying to avoid completely being destroyed, it's an okay strategy. 
However, there is another amazing parallel, though, to all kinds of future things that will happen with Jacob and Israel, who his name will be changed to, in the whole idea that his entire family will be divided from this point on. There will be a division between his family, that there will be two houses of Israel. And then we saw this play out in going into the future when they went into the land of Israel and that there were two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom. There was a southern kingdom. There were two companies. And what they, unfortunately, what often happened is they warred with each other. They, 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 there was division within the family, not just a physical division, but a spiritual division as well. I'd like to take us to another New Testament passage. Where there is, where the Messiah speaks something, uh, that might, uh, relate to this. So if you would turn to Matthew chapter 12, where the, uh, and this is also quoted in Mark chapter 3, and this is the part in which God is talking about, and you may have heard it before, a house divided. So, if we turn to Matthew chapter 12 of verse 22, Let us read here at about a time in which a man who was healed and who was demon-possessed, but the Messiah cast out the demon, and we can hear all of this instruction. Verse 22 of Matthew chapter 12. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, and they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub the ruler of demons. But, Je- but Jesus, Yeshua, knew their thoughts, and he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself, then how will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by, uh, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges." But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. And how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Very fascinating instruction here, and many people and teachers and scholars have wondered truly what all of this uh, that he's speaking and what this means. I believe there is a simple understanding that can come from this. I know there's more deeper spiritual things that the Messiah is speaking to, but there is one that is a little bit more simple but makes all the sense in the world and can actually help us to understand and how to relate and work with one another, even in our modern day, day day-to-day lives. The simple concept of a house divided against itself not standing. I always love the fact that the, that, that extra phrase is in there. It doesn't just say a house divided will not stand. Because there, if it just said that, well, then you might say, well, man, any time that there's any sort of physical uh, um, division between one people or another, that houses just crumble and fall and, and, and don't. And and nothing can ever last and no family can ever build itself up if every house divided falls. But no, it specifically says a house divided against itself. Okay, so then as we come to our modern day lives and within our families, we've all had issues within our families from time to time. We've had times in which some people are, there's a division, whether it's a physical division, a spiritual division, somebody believed something differently or somebody said something to one person versus another or whatever it might be. 
that we are divided. If we are divided, yeah, that's one thing. But if as we are divided, we then go to war with each other, that's when the house will fall. That's when destruction comes. So going back to uh, Jacob, dividing his household. It specifically says there in Genesis, he divided his people. Now, did he divide his people to war against each other? Did they always have this heart to uh, uh, be against one another, to, to, to have jealousy versus one versus the other? Now, that's not why he divided them. No, he divided them for their protection. He divided them so that, they, so, so that Israel might live on if anything were to happen to one versus the other. The problem comes is one if they war against themselves. Well, as our story continues on and as we'll continue to study in uh, into the future of what happened with the descendants of Jacob, we know there was division within the family. Well, start talking next week about how Joseph was was, um, uh, you know, his brothers were jealous of him and that they sold him into slavery and that they that, that there was all this division immediately within the family. None of that happened until the physical division happened in the family. And this will continue on constantly through them being divided as to, to, to who, uh, one doing one that the other one didn't like. Even in our tour portion, after the interaction with Esau, there's going to be a whole time in which they come to the city of Shechem. And there'll be a whole incident in which their sister Dina will, will end up being raped by the, by the prince of that city. And two of the sons of Israel are going to go take vengeance on the city. And much to the chagrin of Jacob, because he was fearful for how all this... Uh, citizens of the land would look upon him as that his sons killed an entire city and that there was immediately division upon coming back into the land within the family against one another. You can see these things that all all of these things all started to to come and, and, and makes the house less strong where they where they fight against each other. All this goes all the way to when the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel came in the times of the kings and that there were civil wars between the peoples. Civil wars and, and, and fights amongst them. And never was Israel ever whole once again until the divisions and the strife between them was removed. Now, we, we can, of course, see that God divided the kingdom of Israel for their safety and their protection. We have independent exiles that began for the northern kingdom into Assyrian captivity, the southern kingdom into Babylonian captivity, though they were freed and were able to come back, and that there has always been a remnant of Israel that perhaps if they were all one people, they might have gotten wiped out entirely a long time ago. But for their protection, Israel has been divided into two companies. But the whole goal of the future coming of the Messiah and when he wants to bring us all back is going to be when the house of Israel and the house of Judah become one once more. When they join back together. When it says in Isaiah that Israel will stop vexing Judah and Judah will stop vexing Israel or Ephraim as it says. And that when only when that happens will the house become one and whole again. The house is divided. 100% the house is divided. Nobody will argue the fact that we are divided, even within our own uh, religions and our own denominations and anything that we follow, we're divided among one another on what we believe, what we follow. We sit here in the Messianic Hebrew Roots movement to sitting in the bridge in the gap 
between Judaism and between Christianity and where we see and we're like, look, we are all believing in the same God. If we can just figure out how to stop hating one another, striving against one another, causing jealousy amongst one another, well, then we would be able to come back together. And such has to happen before the return of the Messiah will come. But we have a lot of work to do because we continue to divide the house and continue to have strife between us. Because we are divided against ourselves. That's the nature of the, of the movement where we stand. This is why all the denominations of Christianity, all the different sects of Judaism that somehow that war with one another. And when we decide to go out and be different for the sake of being different or try to build ourselves up by tearing down what, where we came from, all we do is continue the, the, the division, spiritual division between us and that we're divided against ourselves. Look, we are divided, but we have to come to the point to where we are divided, but we are not against one another because a house divided will not stand. It does not stand on its own, is not whole, is not one. We are looking forward to the great restoration of the whole house of Jacob. It all began when he divided his company for the sake of protection. It is, of course, all God's plan, all of God's plan and purpose. However, God's plan and purpose doesn't end there. It ends with him bringing back all of the scattered of Israel, bringing us all back so that we might be whole and might be one once again. That is the purpose of the Great Commission that the Messiah sent his disciples into the nations because there was a flock that was not there. There was the entire northern kingdom of Israel scattered into Assyrian captivity, scattered into the nations. No one, they didn't even know who they were. But the Messiah and his testimony would go into the nations and to bring them back, to draw them back. We believe that is being fulfilled, absolutely. We believe that it's, it, there's, uh, whether it's the majority of the modern mainstream Christian church that represents that northern kingdom of Israel. And there are people that are being led to the Messiah through that institution and are then being brought back to the Hebrew roots of their faith and coming in and joining together. We, are, we believe in this ministry and in this movement that we are seeing that restoration happen over time. Of course, we would love for the Messiah and the Lord to uh, snap his fingers and have it be this miraculous joining back together. But no, we all have to do our part in this great reunification. And it begins with us not being divided against ourselves. We shoot ourselves in our foot, in the foot when we are all constantly in a state of fighting with one another. Well, you're wrong on this doctrine. You're, we, well, we do it this way and we do it this way and, and you shouldn't be following them because, the, you know, they do it over the, where uh, they follow the wrong calendar. They say the name wrong. They do all of these things that divide us. And we sit there and we bicker about one another. Instead of working with one another, understanding that the Lord is doing great and mighty and marvelous things and that it is not our job to continue the division or pointing out the division against one another. We draw lines in the sand. We say, you're a Jew. We say, you're a Gentile. And that's always going to be the case. Unfortunately, Israel is a tree in which all are grafted into, regardless of what your heritage is or some title that we paint on one another, that no, we all are adopted in to become sons of the living God, that we get a title that is given by God, not defined by man. And that's where we need to get to. 
That's what we need to do. So how do we do that? How do we help to be the fulfillment of prophecy? Stop drawing lines of division against one another. It is that house that will not stand. We have been divided, yes. It has actually been for our sake, for our protection, that some of us we have divided. In fact, there's an entire other phrase where you ever heard the phrase divide and conquer. Sometimes when you divide things, you can actually fight two fronts at one time. Absolutely. I mean, where you, you can look at it, maybe this is a big broad brush stroke of, of idea or thought process where you have uh, Judaism that have been the ones who have maintained the culture, the custom, the traditions of how to follow the commandments and the word of the Lord. And they have had the Torah for thousands, uh, for a thousand years, hundreds of years, and that you have the mainstream Christian church that has been leading people to the Lord for 2000 years and that they have divided and conquered two major things that have to be done. One, following and obeying the Lord and keeping the commandments, the Torah, the, the, the traditions and the words of Moses and the customs of Moses, keeping those things safe. While at the same time, there is a whole lot of people in the world who are in need of saving that the Christian church has done their job to lead people to the Lord and to the Messiah. If those two things have been divided in all the ideas of Judeo-Christian values that we have in our life, they've been divided and they've been conquering things and issues and things that have needed to be done in the course of history. They have divided and conquered. Now, problem is, is they've also divided and then been divisive against one another. And causing strife and saying one is wrong and one has killed the Messiah and one killed all the prophets and the other one is that, that you can't be one or the other. It's like, no, God has a plan for all of it. And it all has to do with the reunification of the whole house of Israel. This is what the Messiah was doing. This was the purpose of the Great Commission. And it was all about a great regathering of all the household of Israel. One more last parallel I want to draw to our Torah portion for this week of Vayishlach. Something fascinating. It might be a little uh, circumstantial. It might be, some people might say, well, that's, that's just coincidence that that's the case. Well, in our Torah portion, it's actually a pretty long Torah portion um, back there in Genesis. There is exactly 153 verses in that Torah portion. 153. Now, we might say, oh, well, the numbering of the, of the verses all happened later after when they, when they canonized the Bible and, and lined out what was a verse and what wasn't a verse, and it stops at this sentence here and not that one there, whatever it was. There's still a coincidence, fascinating, when it, you see the number 153, because this, of course, dies directly to, at the end of the Gospel of John, when the disciples were fishing after the Messiah had... Um, after the, after the Messiah had been crucified, but then that he then goes and they go fishing. They don't know what to do, so they go fishing. And then he calls to them and he shows back up to them and he says, throw your net in on the right side. And they didn't know who he was on the side of the shore. And suddenly they pull in the fish and it's 153 fish. And they, we, they know the Messiah has come back to life, that he has risen. And that's number 153. Why? Why is number 153 significant? Well, there's fascinating parallels in the gematria that that number represents the, the, um, uh, the phrase sons of the living God. And it was immediately following this that he was going to say and sends them on the great commission, sends them, go feed my sheep. I will make you fishers of men. And that again, it's a, it's a callback to the regathering of the whole house of Israel. So we can go all the way back to our Torah portion with 153 verses in it, in the Torah portion where it begins the division of the house of Israel into two companies, knowing that it is the Great Commission and the work of the Messiah 
that will regather the whole house of Israel. Beautiful little parallel that encourages us in our modern day walk as we are going about doing our best to study the word, follow the commandments of God, that we know we are a part of a greater picture and a greater company. We might think that we have our own isolated place in the world, that we are this particular religion or this particular faith, and that we're never going to ever interface with this one or that one. No, God has a greater plan for the entire world, I guarantee you, and that we are looking forward to that greater plan, to the reunification, to find out that we have way more family and way more in common with another group of people than we ever thought or imagined that we would. And we will all be caught up in the great will and the plan of God to restore his house, and his family. We're looking forward to the kingdom when we will all dwell with him in the land of Israel where the Messiah will be our king and he will be the great Torah teacher and we will be learning all of these things and all of these instructions and as we retell the stories of old and you'll be hearing it from the Messiah himself and not from flawed men who do our best to share and encourage the people with the word of the Lord. What a great day that will be. And may we continue to stay focused on that that's the goal, that we will all be one with the Messiah at some future day. But we have to do our part to not continue to to draw the lines of division between us, knowing that we are all a part of Israel and we are all sons of the living God. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your teaching, your instruction, Father. Father, I thank you for... um, Choosing us from among all peoples, Lord, Father, and I pray for and I thank you for Israel, Lord, for Jacob, for his family, Lord, that it was through this family, through this seed, that all the nations might be saved and all the nations might be blessed. Father, I pray that you would uh, allow us to be to 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 take this adoption into your family, knowing that we are a part of your family, Lord, that we are heirs to the kingdom, to the inheritance, Lord. And Father, as you have not yet returned, Lord, to this earth, Father, I pray that we remain steadfast to be a part of your kingdom, to be the fulfillment of prophecy, to love one another, to teach words and instructions, Father, how to follow you better with our hearts and with our lives, Lord. And Father, I pray that we would stop causing jealousy among one another, Father, that we would stop vexing one another, and that we would learn to become whole and one, and that we will not be divided against each other any longer. Father, we have been separated from our brother. But Father, I pray for a great restoration, a great reunification of the whole house of Israel. And Father, may we all be caught up in that and surrounded in your perfect will and what you are doing in our lives as we prepare for your soon return, Lord. We love you, we bless you, and thank you on this Sabbath day. We thank you for all of these things. It's in your Son, Yeshua, that we pray. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Panavelecha 
vihuneka isadonai panav elecha veasem lecha lecha Shalom. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Bye.